You're listening to Pastor Ryan Couch as he teaches through the book of Philippians. If you have your Bibles with you, please open them there. We're continuing to study through the book of Philippians. We're going to finish Philippians this morning. As it says on the screen, we're going to look at Philippians 4, 10 through 23, through the end of the chapter. And uh, this morning I want to look at joy and money. And I kind of wrestled with what I wanted to call it. Did I want to call it joy in giving? Did I want to call it joy in finances? Joy in money is what I came up with because I think that term money kind of arrests our senses a little bit. It it kind of um, resonates with us. We all understand the concept of money. And and we understand that uh, the Bible says that the love of money is the root of all evil. But Money in and of itself is very neutral. It's a harmless thing. It's not something that we need to fear or that, you know, even having lots of is is a problem. But money should not control us. Money should not be the passion of our life. And that's what I want to talk about this morning because the Bible says where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so what you're investing in, what you spend your money on, reveals your heart. And we can say that we love Jesus, and we can say that God is the most important thing in our life, and we can say that Jesus is our all in all. But if we are not investing in the things of God, in the things of the kingdom, then that is empty talk. And that's what the Bible tells us. That where our treasure is, there our heart is also. It reveals our heart. It really shows us where we're at with Jesus. What we do with our money. And so, this morning we're going to see two main points regarding money. In verses 10 through 13, we're going to look at being content with what you have. Being content with what you have. That's That's an important element of being a good steward and understanding money, is being content with what you have. And then in verses 14 through 20, we're going to look at being a giver with what you have. And it's when we're content with what we have that we're then a giver with what we have. And then in verses 21 through 23, Paul just closes the book and and we'll look at that briefly. And so joy in money. First of all, be content with what you have, verses 10 through 13. Let's read those verses and then talk about what it means to be content. He says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. And there's that word rejoiced again. And we've learned that that word is scattered throughout this book. It means to have joy in the fact that Jesus has given you hope, in life beyond your circumstances. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. And this word flourished, it basically it gives the idea of a tree budding forth new life. Think of the spring and new buds, new, new life on a tree. That's what Paul says, that your care, and he's speaking of monetary things, that your concern for me, your care for me, has flourished again. It's, it's taken on new life. 
though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. And so, in other words, they've always cared about Paul. In fact, they're one of the only churches that supported Paul financially. But during this time of imprisonment and during this time of Paul's life where he was kind of estranged from all of his friends and brothers and sisters in Christ, they didn't know how to get a hold of him. They didn't know where to send the money to. And so they lacked opportunity. That's what that means. It doesn't mean they lack the resources. Sometimes people will say, well, see, the Philippians waited until they had some money, then they gave it to Paul. It's not what he says. He says they lacked opportunity. In other words, they didn't have UPS. They didn't have a, a great system to, to deliver money. And so he, they lacked opportunity. Now, or not that I speak in regard, regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, which basically means to have nothing, to live in, in humility. And I know how to abound, which means to, to just be prosperous. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. And I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so we see this idea of contentment here. That to have joy in money, to have joy in our finances, to be a good steward, we have to learn, and that word learn is super important in this text. We have to learn how to be content with what we have. And Paul says that these Philippians, these believers there, had learned this concept of being content because this church was not a wealthy church. These people did not have a lot of money. And yet they were a church that had learned to just be content, to be totally at rest with where they were at in life financially. They had learned that and they they were givers despite that. And Paul says... In, in case they, they got the wrong idea, as he talks about money in verse 10, as he says that, man, I'm really stoked that you guys were able to give to me again, because you have to understand something about the culture and, and a little bit about history, is that unlike today, when a person was in prison, they had to support themselves. The state or the government did not support them. They had to support themselves, and, and family had to send money, or friends would send money to them. And, and Paul was relying on this from the churches that he had planted and the people that he had ministered to. But there was a time where they didn't know how to get a hold of Paul. Nobody knew where he was at. And Paul just had to trust the Lord. You and I have been in those times where we, we just come to the end of, of any possibility of relying on our own strength, and we just have to trust the Lord. And we have to be content right where He has us. And in case they got the wrong idea about what Paul was saying as he's rejoicing in their gift, he says, look, I'm, I'm not speaking in regard to my need. I'm not begging you. I'm not saying that, that I was destitute without you. 
because he trusted the Lord. God was going to provide one way or the other. He says, for I have learned in whatever state I'm in, and this isn't talking about Oregon or California. This is talking about the state of your finances, the state of, of where you find yourself financially, that whatever state I'm in, I'm content with that. I want you guys to think about that. Are you content where you're at? And here's the thing. Here's something I want you guys to understand. Is that if you're not content where you're at right now, and I don't care if you don't have a dollar to your name, if you're not content with where you're at today, you will never be content with where you're at financially. Contentment is a spiritual discipline. And if you're not content with poverty and with struggles financially, you will not be content even if you had a million dollars because you would always want something more. You would always want another dollar. And I can't remember what billionaire was asked. It may have been Bill Gates, may have been Warren Buffett, somebody like that was asked, you have billions of dollars to your name. How much is enough? And their answer was one more dollar. One more dollar. Because that's the passion of their life. That's what gets them up in the morning. That's what drives them. And both those guys are very generous guys. But it's still the driving force of their life. It's still what motivates them. It's, it's an addiction to get that next dollar. And if you're not content with the 10 or $12 an hour job that you have, if you're not content with, with the, the state of your finances right now, you will never be content even if you were making six figures or seven figures. You'll never be content if you're not content where you're at today. That's the message that Paul is giving us. That I've learned in whatever state I'm in to be content. And Paul could say this. As he goes on to say, I know how to be abased. Paul had been as low as you could go, as he tells us that there were times where he didn't even have any food. He was literally starving to death. There were times that he was out at the sea with nothing to his name, just floating about in storms and shipwrecks. There were times where on missionary journeys, he would be heading to the next place without any resources, without any money. He knew how to be as low as you can go, to not have a place to lay his head, to not have a home, to not have a job, to not have any security financially. Not only did he know how to be that, but he also knew how to abound. And you guys, I want you to notice the word learned here. He says, Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and suffer need. It's something that you learn. You and I have to learn how to be content with where we're at right now. And maybe you've learned to be content in, in having very little. It can also be very difficult to be content in having a lot. Because when you have a lot, you have opportunity to make more. When you have a lot, you have opportunity to do more. And I think it's almost more difficult to be content with a lot. 
Paul says, I've learned, and, and it's a learning thing. It's a, it's a lesson. It's something that you don't just experience overnight. You have to grow into it. You have to mature into contentment. And Paul says, I've learned how to be mature in both areas. And you guys, that ought to be the, the prayer of our life. God, I want to be content. I don't want my happiness, I don't want my joy to be rooted in the next thing, the next purchase, the bigger home, the nicer car, the, the new clothes, a better, faster, bigger computer. Whatever it is, could be hunting equipment, it, it, it could be decor in your house, because nothing ever satisfies. You remodel your whole house, you redecorate, and in five years, it's kind of out of style, and it's you want to do it again, and and so we have to be content. And again, there's nothing wrong with buying new hunting equipment or remodeling your house or buying a new car. But if we are putting our life's passion into that, if we're thinking that is going to make us happy, if we're looking for fulfillment in that, then it will leave us empty. We have to learn to be content. And I think that even for some of you young people here this morning, maybe you don't have a lot of money right now. Maybe you don't even have a job. You're going to school. This is such an important thing for you to understand. That no matter what you end up doing, no matter how much money you, you make, that you need to be content. That there's a lot to be said for being content. There's a lot to be said for just being at rest with where God has you. And this doesn't excuse laziness. This doesn't excuse people that, that have no vision or ambition or desire. This isn't saying that people that uh, just case sarah, sarah, whatever will be, will be kind of an attitude that they're better. This is saying that even though you're, you're working hard, even though you're making investments, even though you're providing for your family and, and you're out engaged in that, that you don't put your stock into that, that that's not your life's passion, that that's not your ambition, that you're content with wherever you're at. And if you lost everything, you would be content. And I think for Americans, that's, that's a question to ask ourselves. If we lost everything, and some people have, haven't they? Just recently, up in the southern Washington area where my parents live, thousands of people were left homeless in those floods. My, my mom was, was pretty engaged in all of that, helping the flood victims. And there were people 50, 60 years old who had worked their entire lives that in a moment had nothing. Zero. Gone. 
Maybe they never had the opportunity to buy a home and they didn't have uh, renter's insurance. Maybe they didn't have flood insurance, which you have to have flood insurance. And so, you know, it was just gone. It's, it's sayonara history. And now you're sitting down at the Salvation Army playing checkers and you have nothing. Are we content with that? I ask myself that question. I don't know. I don't know. I would want to be, and I think I would have to learn to be in that situation. But what kind of grip do material things have upon your life? Listen to the words of Jesus in uh, Luke chapter 12. He says, take heed and beware of covetousness. Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. That's one of the greatest verses on money in the whole Bible. Take heed and beware of covetousness. What's covetousness? It's wanting one more dollar. It's wanting the next thing, the newest thing, the up-and-coming thing. Because one's life does not consist, it's not rooted in the abundance of the things he possesses. Now, Americans have tried to prove this verse wrong. Americans have tried to prove this verse wrong by saying, my life does consist in all of these things. Maybe you tried to prove this wrong in your own life, and you're finding that it's empty, that it's meaningless. We need to be content. And verse 13 is, is such a great verse. It's, it's all over little placards and people put it on their mirrors in their bathroom and, and, and football players say it before they, they go out to you know run into each other at full speed. I can do all things through Christ. Golfers say it right before they tee off. You know, I can do all things. Basketball players say it as they're about to shoot a free throw with zero seconds left in a you know tie tie game. I can do all things. That verse, this verse, has nothing to do with athletics, has nothing to do with lifting weights. You know, you see it in weight rooms. I can do all things. When Paul wrote this, he did not have in mind squatting five hundred pounds. It wasn't what he had in mind. He didn't have in mind teeing off like Tiger Woods. What Paul had in mind is being content. That you can do all things through Christ. That you can learn to be content with a little or with a lot. You can do all things because as people would read these verses about being content, they would think, well, man, this is impossible. How am I going to do this? How would I be content if everything I have was stripped away? How could I be content if I had a million dollars that I could now invest in, that I could now buy stuff with? Would I be content if I had a lot of money? Well, if Christ is in you, yes. Because you can... Do all things through Christ. See, we can't extract this verse from its context. And actually, in our 
passage this morning, in our text this morning, there's two verses that are classic. Are classic verses that we just rip out of their context and use to justify or to describe all kinds of things. Now look, there's nothing wrong with lifting weights or golfing or playing football or any of these things I describe, but this verse does not have anything to do with that. We can't just use this verse and say, I can do anything through Christ. We have to look at it in its context, and in its context, it's talking about contentment. It's talking about money. It's talking about finding joy in money. And how many people, how many of us, find joy in our finances Through Christ, we can. We can do all things. J.B. Phillips, who's a translator of the New Testament, translates verse 13 this way. I am ready for anything through the strength of the one who lives within me. I'm ready for anything. I'm ready for anything that comes my way. Guys, that should encourage you this morning. Because some of you may lose jobs this year. Some of you may get a, a cut in pay. Some of you may have investments that fail. Some of you may come into a lot of money. Some of you may, as the term, strike it rich. But whatever happens, if Christ is in you, you can be ready for it. And you can be content through His strength. Jesus is asking us this morning, what does your life consist of? Are you content in me? Are you content in the state that you're in right now? And many people in our region are struggling financially. Many people across the United States are are struggling. We could be entering a very difficult time over the next couple of years. And and there's a lot of negativity and there's, there's a lot of discouragement, depression, and people are talking about it a lot, and it's the big hot-button topic in the presidential race right now, the economy. Because we're putting all of our passion, all of our focus into that, aren't we? And we want hope. Man, tell, tell me that, that my house is going to increase in value, that I didn't pay too much for it, and I'm not going to lose all kinds of money. Tell me that. And we want people to give us hope. We want people to tell us that things are going to turn around. And if they do, great. But what if they never do? What if we were to, to hit a, a time of depression, of recession, Would we be content? Would we be content with wherever we're at? That's the question that we need to ask ourselves this morning. Well, to have joy in finances is not only being content with what you have, but it's also being a giver with what you have. And this is is huge in the body of Christ. Because oftentimes people will say, When I get to this point, then I will give to the Lord. When my kids are out of the house and some money gets freed up, 
When I get that retirement that I'm supposed to get, when I get the better job, when my wife can go back to work, because right now she's staying at home, and, but when she can go back to work and we're having two incomes, then I can give. Here's the thing. Just like the principle that I shared with you about contentment, that if you're not content where you're at right now, you'll never be content, the same is true with giving. If you're not giving right now, you'll never give. If you're not giving of the dollar that you have, you won't give when you have $100, when you have $1,000, or when you have a million dollars. And if you don't believe me, just, just look at your own life. Maybe when you were younger, you said, I can't give because I'm too young. I don't have any money. And your parents didn't share with you the discipline of giving to the Lord. And then when you were in college, you said, I, I can't give because I'm in college. And then when you were a young adult and having little kids, it was this. And now you're however old you are. And has that discipline kicked in at all? Has it ever kicked in? Or is it just another excuse? And it will always be something else. It's the same with our time. It's the same with our resources, our talents. It's all the same. That where our treasure is, our heart will be also. If you're not giving like the widow who, who gave out of her poverty, if that principle is not rooted in your life, you will never give. You need to give right where you're at. Give according to what you have. And Paul compares giving to a few things here. In verses 14 through 17, he compares it to an investment. He says, Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. You shared with me. You partnered with me in my distress. Paul was in a distressing time. Where was he going to, to get his next meal? He couldn't go out and make tents. He was in prison. He had to provide for himself. Where was he going to get that money? Well, it was going to be from the churches that he had planted. Now, you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, or that is the beginning of his work there in Europe, beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia or I departed from Greece, no church, li listen to that, no church, shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. This is a microcosm of the church today. As Paul writes this, it was only the Philippians that helped him. And, and today in the church, it's a very small percentage of people that give to the work of the Lord. Now, we all want to receive from the work of the Lord. We all want our, our children to, to be blessed in Sunday school, to have snacks, to have color sheets, to have crafts. We want the building to be warm. We, we want um, the staff to be able to do what they're doing. We want the, the programs to be, be available. We want the, the opportunities to spread the gospel, to, to be there, the outreaches. But somehow we just have this understanding that somebody else will do it. I'm sure that all of these churches that Paul had planted thought what Paul was doing was an amazing thing. None of them would have said, Paul, you're, 
you're wasting your time. This isn't a good idea. They all would have said, man, this is great, Paul. You're out there preaching the gospel. But none of them thought it important enough to actually partner with him and get involved in an investment standpoint, except for the Philippians. Such a microcosm of the church. That everybody says these things are important that I just described. But only a few. And unfortunately, a, a small percentage actually invest in it. And actually put their money where their mouth is in, in this regard. He says, for even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Even when Paul was in Thessalonica, where they should have been providing, the Thessalonians, the Philippians sent him money. Because they knew that the Thessalonians weren't helping, and so they thought, we'll help. We'll get behind them. Again, a microcosm of the church where, where basically a few partner and invest for the benefit of the whole. And it shouldn't be that way. Now, some people have the idea that Paul somehow just always provided for himself. That he was always out there making tents and he, he had jobs on the side. And, and that just is not the truth. Paul did that at times. But Paul knew that what was better is if those that he was ministering to would get behind his ministry and support him. That's biblical. In fact, there may be very few things that you can substantiate biblically more than that. Sometimes people say that, well, you know, why, why do we give to the church? Why, why do pastors receive from the church? Why, why is this whole thing so important? Well, because it's scriptural, because it's biblical. You, you can't get many things that are more substantiated than, than this. And Paul says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. And so Paul wasn't looking simply for the money. He wasn't saying, look, I, I want to take from you. I want what you have for myself. Paul just wanted his needs met. Paul just wanted to be able to concentrate on ministry. Paul just wanted to be able to, be able to go out and share the gospel with people. And he says, in fact, it was more important to me that the fruit that abounds to your account would come to pass in your life as you invest with me in the gospel. Because they were partnering with Paul. As he says there in verse 15, he says, no church shared. This is the same word koinonia that we get fellowship from. Communion. No church shared. No church partnered. No church got behind me except for you, he says. And as they gave materially and monetarily to Paul, they received spiritually from the Lord. It's an investment, you guys. The Bible says, store up your treasures in heaven. Store up your treasures in heaven. And 
We talk a lot about investments as Americans who have money to invest, right? There are TV shows dedicated to it. There are magazines, newspapers, experts. There are financial advisors. There are people that you can go to and give them money and they will invest it for you. It's a big deal making investments. And if you have extra money, you should invest it. Sticking sticking in a savings account, drawing, you know, three quarters of a percent interest is not really a good idea. But if you're a person who understands the importance of investing, what better investment can you make than in the things of the kingdom of God. In fact, we're going to die one day. All of us are. If you haven't come to grips with that, maybe you should. (laughs) We're all going to die, whether you're 14 or 80 here this morning. We're all going to die. And the, the fact is that we can't take our money with us that we will not be able to take it with us. So the only thing that really will ever be able to see come to any kind of true return return on our investment is investing in things of heaven. We talk about return on our investment. That when I put a dollar into it, I would really like to see at least a dollar 10 or a dollar 25 come back to me be even better if i if i got a 100% return right where i can double my money i i put out a dollar i get a dollar back and and return on investments a big deal well here's the thing you guys when you give to the lord there is no better return on investment because the bible says store up your treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys. The only money we will ever see again is money invested in heavenly things. I've invested quite a bit of money for me, a little bit that I have, into my home. But someday that home is going to fall apart. It's going to literally be just bulldozed over. Probably not in my lifetime, but someday that thing is going to be garbage. Look at all these buildings around town that are getting just bulldozed over. At one time, that was a nice building. At one time, somebody was proud of that. At one time, somebody invested and thought, look what I've done with my money. This is amazing. And they looked at that and they were proud of it. But do you know that now that's a pile of asbestos and two-by-fours and nails and stuff that's going to the dump and the dump doesn't even want it? And so what are we investing in? Are you investing only in things that will perish, only in things that will rust and be destroyed? It's an empty life if that's the case. 
You guys, there, there are lots of opportunities for you to invest right here at Calvary Chapel. Lots of opportunities. And I'm not saying that this is the only place that, that you should give. I think that all of us need to be disciplined in giving a certain percentage of our income to the local church that we go to. That's, once again, scriptural. But I think all of us should also be giving above and beyond that in what might be called an offering. Maybe that's to the poor. Maybe that's to help the oasis. Maybe that's to a missionary. Maybe that's to outreaches and special things that the church is doing and, and you're giving toward that. But all of us should be giving with no questions asked to the things of, of the Lord, to, to keep the church functioning. And when I say no questions asked, I don't mean that there's not accountability, but I, I mean that we're not trying to dictate where the money goes. Because th there's, as we talked about a few weeks ago, and it's not something I like to talk a whole lot about, but there's $12,000 every month that has to be allocated just to pay the bills. And so... That's, that's a big deal for our church, and, and we have to be disciplined in that if we want to continue to see God blessing the work here. If you want to invest in that. It's not only an investment. He doesn't only compare it to that, but he also compares it to a sacrifice. Look what he says in verse 18. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus. Remember, he's talked about him Epaphroditus was from Philippi, but they sent him to Paul to kind of help him out, and, and they sent with him money. Having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, this would be the burnt sacrifice. This is the picture Paul's referring to. The sacrifice that was placed on the altar and consumed, and the, the smell like a roast was to be Lifted up to God. Not that God literally smelled it and went, oh man, this smells like home cooking. No, but it's, it's a picture of just the fact that God was pleased with this. And God would be pleased with their sacrifice. It was an acceptable sacrifice. Look at that last phrase, well-pleasing to God. In other words, when you give sacrificially, it's a sweet-smelling aroma. It's an acceptable sacrifice. It's well-pleasing to God. But you guys, I want you to understand something. It has to be a sacrifice. And I'm just going to give some examples. If, if somebody makes $50,000 a year and they, they give to the Lord 50 bucks here and there, that's not a sacrifice. Now, if somebody makes... $10,000 a year, then maybe that is a sacrifice. And I'm not trying to get into specifics of what you should give or what you shouldn't give, but you get the point. In Romans chapter 12, we're, we're told that we're to give our lives, to offer our lives as a living sacrifice. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that would include our money. When we lay our lives on the altar, that includes our checkbook. And we're dead. We give our whole life to the Lord. We say, God, my life is not my own. Yes, that includes my money. 
Yes, that includes my house. I don't want to be selfish with my resources. I don't want to use it purely on things for me and my loved ones. I want to be a giver. It's a sacrifice. And some people say, well, I give a lot to my kids. Look, that's a natural thing. Even unbelievers do that. That's not a sacrifice. Maybe it is in, in the sense of you're, you're sacrificing for them, but it's not a spiritual sacrifice in the sense that you're giving it to things that maybe you won't even partake in. You get to see your kids grow up and go to college and, and all of those things, and that's a, that's a great thing, and I'm not saying don't be involved in it, but that's not what we're talking about here. This is a spiritual sacrifice. In Hebrews 13, verse 16, the writer says, Do not forget to do good and share. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. In 2 Samuel 24, verse 24, David goes to offer a sacrifice to the Lord. And he chooses to go to this place, this piece of private property, to do it. And he's going to purchase this piece of land. And the owner of it says, no, you're the king, just take it. You can have it. If you're, oh, you're going to sacrifice it to the Lord? Just take it, it's yours, I, I'll partner with you in it. And what did David say? Okay, great. No, he said, I will not offer to God anything that doesn't cost me something. Because David understood the principle of a sacrifice. And the term sacrifice comes from the Old Testament where they would offer up bulls and goats and lambs and their crops. The first fruits, the best of the best, and it was a sacrifice. You better believe it was a sacrifice. To offer that, that bull that was going to produce such good stock. That lamb that would bring money. That goat that would bring milk. Or whatever other commodity it might bring. And now you're going to slit its throat. You're going to put it on the altar and burn it up. And it would be very easy to say, well, what's the point of all of this? Why do I have to do this? Because it's what God asked them to do. And he wanted their obedience. And see, it really had nothing to do with the stupid goat or the bull or any other of their resources. God wasn't that concerned with it. Just like he said to Saul, it's not the stuff, it's your heart that I want. And see, where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. And so we reveal our heart. When we offer that as a sacrifice, we're proving, we're demonstrating that Jesus is number one. As he said to Saul, it's not the sacrifice, it's your obedience. To obey is better than sacrifice. Guys, God doesn't need our money. The check that you write and drop in the box is not that important to God. What he wants is your obedience. And he knows 
that this is one of the key areas that you will demonstrate where your heart is and who you're obeying is with your money because it means so much to us because we work so hard for it. Believe me, I understand why we cling to our money. Number one, it doesn't come easy. Number two, things are, are getting much more expensive and, and yet our wages have not gone up that much. Inflation is, is rising at a much faster rate than, than our pay. I understand why we cling to our money. But you guys, where's our heart? Who are we trusting? Is God able to provide? Yeah, but gas is $3.30 a gallon. It used to be a buck fifty, and I thought that was expensive. You, have you seen the price of food? Have you seen my electric bill? It was 300 bucks last month. Have you seen clothes? And we all are experiencing these things. None of us is immune to it unless you live on the streets. Living in the year 2008 is expensive. I understand that. But is God bigger than that? Is God bigger than the price of gas? Do you think God's that concerned with the price of gas? Is God that concerned with how much a box of cereal costs? Is God all freaked out about PP&L's price increases? I don't think so. And so when we stand before him and we say, Lord, did you see my bills? Did you see all of that? And God says, yeah, I did. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You remember the widow, and we referred to her already. And the widow and her two mites, and all of these men and all of these people were giving lots of money, but they were giving out of their abundance. And Jesus took notice of one little widow who gave two mites. And this may not be what went down, but I think this is an interesting way to look at it. In the temple, there were two places to give. There were two designations of where you would give. There was to the Lord, and there was to the poor. And so you would give... Some to the Lord, you would give some to help the poor. And my thought is this is what happened. The widow went in intending to give one mite and keep one for herself. Give one mite to the Lord, keep one mite so that I can feed myself for a day. As she went in, what I think happened is God told her to give both, one to the Lord and one to the poor. Give both. Well, Lord, where am I going to get food for tonight? How am I going to feed myself? Trust me. Give it to me. And as she did that, she revealed where her heart was. Even though it was a little. Do you think the temple was stoked over those two mites? It didn't mean anything in the economy of the temple. But in God's economy, it was written in the eternal word of God. 
to always be our example of sacrificial giving. Guys, God is not that concerned with the money end of it. Just as Paul says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Now look, in the temporal economy, yes, we need the money. But God's going to provide for it one way or another. I believe he wants to use you. But money really isn't the issue. The issue is your heart. That's what God wants more than anything else. And when you give and you invest in the things of God and you give sacrificially, not out of your abundance, and for all of us that's different, you have to determine what a sacrificial gift is for you. I believe it's when you trust God, when you have to trust God in your giving. That you're giving enough that you have to trust Him. So that you can say with verse 19, And my God shall supply all your need according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. See, here's another verse that just gets pulled out of context, doesn't it? You see it on plaques. We write it on our mirror. We quote it. God's going to provide. Here's the thing, you guys. Not if you're not giving to the Lord. That is right in the context of giving to God. I, I don't understand it. We can't keep up with our bills. We're in debt. Like Haggai says, our, our pockets seem to have holes in them. We can't keep up. People say that to me, and the first question I ask is, are you a giver? Are you sacrificially giving to God? God will supply your need. But in the context here, he's talking to the Philippians. He's talking to people that were givers. And he said, God will supply your need because you've been faithful to trust him with it. You guys... I firmly believe that whatever you give to God will come back to you and even more. I don't know how it will happen, but I firmly believe that. You have to trust Him by faith and give to Him sacrificially. The people that I've watched in my life who I respect, my parents being one of them, who have been givers, and sacrificial givers have never lacked. I've never heard somebody say, I gave to God and then I was broke, starved, left destitute out on the street. I've heard lots of people say, I went bankrupt, I lost my house, I don't have any money to, to buy food. And so I didn't give. Guys, I believe that no matter where you're at right now, you need to be giving to God. No matter where you're at, that you need to have that discipline. Well, I've got all this debt. Okay, well, let's think about that for a second. You got into all kinds of debt to buy stuff for yourself, and so now you're not going to give to the Lord as a result. It's kind of an interesting way to look at it, right? I bought a bunch of stuff that I 
probably didn't need, that was above my means. And so now I've got to pay for all that. So now I'm going to short sell the Lord. Now I'm going to not give to the kingdom because I made bad decisions. My God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory. God will provide for us. God will supply our needs as we are faithfully and sacrificially investing in the things of eternity. When we do that, you guys, you will never, ever be disappointed. But it is faith. It's trusting God. I've told the story before, but I'll tell it again. I remember when my parents first came to Christ, and my mom was, was making a, a small salary. My dad was just a blue-collar guy. And my whole life, we, we never had money, ever. And they, my parents came to Christ, and my mom said, you know what, we need to give. And I think my dad was a little bit hesitant, but with persistence on my mom's part, they, 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 they gave to the Lord. And I saw my parents, as time went on, began, they began to be really blessed. So my mom became a real estate agent as things began to change, as they began to make investments. And you know what? My parents didn't just continue to give the same amount they were giving when they were living on hardly anything. My, my parents gave over and above supporting dozens of missionaries, children through compassion and bridge of hope. And you go into my mom's office and there's probably 20 or 30 faces of kids and missionaries that they support. And they give to the things of God. My parents give to this church. And I've seen my parents be absolutely blown away financially. Sometimes I think like, how come you guys didn't have all this money when I was a kid? You know? We were always broke when I was a kid. But you know what? I truly believe that it was the sacrifice that my parents made. And I'm not saying give to the Lord and you're going to be wealthy. That's not the case at all. But God will supply your needs when you trust him. You will not go without when you trust God. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Paul writes that and he thinks about the provision of God. He thinks about how God has provided for him in so many amazing ways in his ministry and in his life and he can do nothing but just praise the Lord. And then he closes with some final thoughts. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you but especially those who are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Philippians, hands down my favorite book in the Bible. This is an amazing book. Challenge after challenge, after amazing principle. And it's been awesome. I encourage you guys to go back and read through it again. Maybe if you, you've missed some of the studies, get on the website and listen 
and be challenged with these things. Next week, we'll start a series on the cross leading up to Easter. Maybe God is calling you in this season of remembering his sacrifice to sacrifice to him, to give your life to him in an even greater way. Daniel's going to come and close us in, in song. And uh, maybe, maybe you just have some things that you need to confess to the Lord or you need to, to kind of work out with God. If you need prayer, uh, Chad and Jill will be up here to, to pray with you guys. I just pray that these things just resonate in our mind and that we really meditate on these things and, and ask God to make application of them in our own lives and hearts. Let's stand together. You've been listening to Pastor Ryan Couch, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on Calvary Chapel of Crook County, you may email us at info at calvarycrookcounty.com. Or if you would like to write to us, you may do so at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon, 97754. Thank you for listening, and God bless.